Do you remember your most embarrassing moment in life? The most embarrassing one. Well, I thought about that personally, and I've got quite a few of them. But eventually we have to open the Bible and uh, look, look at the scriptures, so I can't tell them all. But I'll share one of them with you. I was in college. It was probably my second or third year of college up at uh, North Texas State University. And I was a music major, or actually a music theory major, with my, and my instrument was classical guitar. I know, a very marketable, <laughs> very mark. And now I lead tours to Israel, which is sort of crazy. <laughs> this is how God works. But consequently, I had to take an elective or three while I was there, and I decided, well, you know, I enjoy singing, so I'll take choir. And that particular semester, we were doing some weird piece that required the choir to sing in a contrapuntal fashion. Contrapuntal means basically a syncopated, you know, it's sort of like when you're listening to some of those crazy 70s recordings from, uh, uh, just figured out stereo, you know, when they're doing all these different things in both sides. Well, that's what this song sounded like. You know, half the choir over here is doing this, you know, half the choir is over here doing this, and there's a few scattered around, but everyone is doing something different and is right on the money. And then you had these long pregnant pauses, or these, uh, what, they, what they're called, or rests. And, and rests means silence. So, we're up there all dressed in our tuxedos and evening gowns and whatnot, and we're hammering away at this song. And I think la or some simple word is what we were saying, but it was, you know, la, 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 la. Everyone was, all the choir was doing all this different contrapuntal sound and sounded really great until the moment that we were supposed to have a full bar of rest and silence, and I go, la! <laughs> And I mean the thing almost ground to a standstill at that moment. I felt like the spotlight, everything went dark and the spotlight just shone. It was humiliating. Humiliating. And there was no getting around that, I, that it was me. Anyway, after the, after the choir thing, I thought, oh, my choir director is going to rake me over the coals. And instead, he just kind of walked up and smiled and said, Hey, Wayne, I loved your solo. (laughs) So, no, I didn't fail choir, but music theory includes being able to count rests. Now, if I were to tell you that story again, if I were to start and say, You know, I think it was about my second or third year in college up in North Texas State, and I could tell you the whole thing again, and I might get a few more chuckles, but the reality is it wouldn't be near as funny as the first time. And I share that with you to to share, we live our lives often from chuckle to chuckle, don't we? And we're always looking for that new movie or that new story 
or that new conversation or joke or whatever, the joy in our lives so often is characterized by little bursts of happiness that have to be replaced with different bursts of happiness. We can't repeat it because they don't last. The joy in our lives is so often characterized by eating cotton candy. You know, for the moment, it tastes really sweet, but then after that, it's just kind of this grit in your mouth, and it doesn't last. The satisfaction doesn't last. There's happiness, but not joy. One time, Mother Teresa was asked what qualifications were required if somebody's going to work beside her in the filthy streets of Calcutta. And immediately she said, oh, there's only two things required. The first is a desire to work hard, and the second is a joyful attitude. Joy is not the absence of hard work. It's not even the absence of struggle. But I think often we try to minimize struggle in our life with bursts of happiness rather than joy. We'll do it through entertainment, through vacations, through relationships, through luncheons, fellowships, activity, looking for the weekend, everything except that which lasts. We content to search for the next stick of cotton candy as opposed to finding something that actually lasts. Blaise Pascal wrote this in his great work, Penzance, or in French, Pensee. He said, the only thing that consoles us for our miseries is diversion, and yet it is the greatest of our miseries. For it is that above all which prevents us from thinking about ourselves and leads us imperceptibly to destruction. But for that, we should be bored, and boredom would drive us to seek some more solid means of escape. But diversion passes our time and brings us imperceptibly to our death. How can we have a joy that lasts beyond the moment? Well, let's look together at Psalm 126. As we go through our series and take just one message from each book of the Bible, here in the poetical section, it gets tough, because especially now in the book of Psalms, you've got 150 Psalms to pick from. I mean, it's like being in a candy shop and your parents telling you, pick one thing. You want to just have a taste of all of them. But Psalm 126 does a really good job of giving us our source of joy, reminding us of our source of joy in a context of struggle. You'll notice Psalm 126 says, or it should say, underneath where it says Psalm 126, a song of ascents. In fact, if you'll notice around it, the psalms around Psalm 126 say the same thing. The group of psalms from 120 to 134, I think it is, um, yeah, are the psalms of ascents. 
The Psalms of Ascents are those songs, those psalms that were sung three times a year as the Hebrews of the Old Testament would ascend to Jerusalem for the feasts. It was sort of the songbook for the feasts. And I don't know that they're, they're necessarily written in order that they were sung, but this is the collection. You could think of it sort of in a sense of like our Christmas carols. We could travel to Pennsylvania. We could travel to California. We could travel to any other part of uh, the United States where there are churches or Christians, even around the world. You just have different, this, the same tune, but you know, translated words. But everybody knows these. Everybody knows the carols. And when you would travel up to Jerusalem, you might be walking along beside and another group would join you. And everyone can sing along in the Psalms of Ascents because everyone knew them. And the great benefit of these psalms were that repeating three times a year these essential themes of life. If you were to go through and just sort of pick the themes out of all the Psalms of Ascents, you've got some great themes on family, on God, on provision, on priorities, uh, worship, uh, dealing with the world. And Psalm 126 does its contribution in telling us about joy. Well, let's read, starting in the first verse, we'll just take this a verse at a time, these six verses. Psalm 126, verse 1 begins, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. The captive ones of Zion, when the Lord brought back, or literally when the Lord restored the captive ones of Zion. Now, in this series that we've gone through, and we've kind of looked through the various books of the Old Testament up to this point, we finished several weeks ago the historical section. And you remember in the, the history of Israel, they went into the land by the faithfulness of God to the promises of Abraham. Through Joshua, they conquered the land. Through the time of the United Kingdom, through David and Solomon, they expanded to basically the full promise land of God. But then the divided kingdom divided the kingdom, and eventually, because of the faithlessness of God's people, they were sent into exile. But because of the faithfulness of God, God brought them back into the land. And it was that bringing back into the land that this psalm is addressing. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, he brought his people back from exile, back into the promised land. And the, the writer, the singer of this psalm says, when that happened, we were like those who dream. It was like a dream come true. That's the context of Psalm 126. It was like a dream come true. It took the harsh reality of the exile to give them a context to realize what a blessing it was to live in the land. So often it's that way, isn't it? You... you have life that seems sort of bland and boring until God introduces a little crisis in your life. And then God removes that crisis from your life and you're back to where you were before but with a brand new perspective of, wow, what a blessing it is to have a boring life as opposed to to have the crisis that God interjects. It's that way and so often it is that way with our health. There was an elderly lady who once wrote, Old folks are worth a fortune. They've got silver in their hair, gold in their teeth, 
stones in their kidneys, lead in their feet, and gas in their stomachs. I've become quite a frivolous old gal. I'm seeing five gentlemen every day. As soon as I get up, Will Power helps me. Then I go to see John. Then Charlie Horse comes along, and when he is there, he takes a lot of my time and attention. When he leaves, Arthur Ritus shows up, and he stays the rest of the day. He didn't like to stay in one place too long, so he takes me from joint to joint. After such a busy day, I'm really tired, and so I go to sleep with Ben Gay. What a life. Oh, the preacher told me that at my age, I ought to be thinking about the hereafter. And I told him, I do that all the time, no matter where I am, upstairs, in the kitchen, in the garage. I ask myself, now what am I hereafter? <laughs> you see, it's all perspective. You're so grateful for your nice, boring life after God introduces a tragedy and realizing, you know, just, just day in and day out, there are blessings to find that we're blind to until God removes them and then gives them back, or sometimes just removes them altogether. Like we saw last week with Job, it took losing so much for Job to get a, a perspective of God that he couldn't have got any other way. Being without does wonders on giving us perspective, and it often takes experiencing, like the psalmist did, captivity to know the true joy of freedom. It was that way when we came to Jesus Christ as well, if you think about it. The good news of the gospel only became good news after you heard the bad news. The bad news is that we're all sinners, and that's a fact. And God is holy, and for us to have a relationship with a God who is holy, that sin problem has to be dealt with. You can live a great life of good works, but what are you going to do with your sin? You're going to, you can go to church every, every uh, Sunday, every Wednesday, every Sunday night. You could even bring something to the potluck. But what are you going to do with your sin? You can donate money. You can sacrifice your time. You can live a wonderful life. But what are you going to do with your sin? Your sin, my sin, is the issue between us and God. And so it's that that has to be dealt with. And that's exactly what God did when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to be our substitute and remove that sin, to pay for that sin completely. And then he rose again to prove that that sin was paid for. Now, before we understood that there was bad news, there was no good news to that story. But once you realize that your sin can eternally separate you from God, then all of a sudden the good news of the gospel becomes the best bad news you've ever heard. Isn't it? Jesus Christ gives us a wonderful perspective on that. Well, the singer looks back now at God's deliverance and he says, Wow, we were like those who dreamed. But he continues in verse 2. He elaborates and he says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. The response of joy at what? What the Lord has done for us. You can't keep it to yourself. 
And when the world hears of it and sees it, they, they can't ignore it. You notice that it's said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them, for Israel. Look at what God's done for them. He brought them back into the land. And he says, we are glad. The writer goes from a joy that was in the past to a joy that's in the present. The Lord, he doesn't say the Lord is doing great things for us. He says the Lord has done great things for us. He looks back at what God has done, and then that brings a present joy. Because of what God's done in the past, we are glad. Because of what God has done, we are glad. The verb tenses are important. And of course, that transfers right over to those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, because, because of what God has done for us through Christ, we are glad. And our joy is not something that lasts as long as a sermon, or as a Sunday school class, or as a big bite of cotton candy. It lasts perpetually, because its effects are perpetual, never-ending. Notice, though, the circumstances that the singer sang under. Verse, verse 4, all things weren't going great. He says, restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Restore our captivity. That doesn't mean, you know, make us captives again, but what it means is bring a full restoration from our captivity. Yes, Lord, you've brought us back into the land, but our coming back into the land has some expectations with it. It's not just land, but with the land, there is an expectation of the kingdom of God. During the, we haven't got to this section of the Old Testament yet, but in the times of the prophets, in the books of the prophets, both the writing prophets and the speaking prophets, they pointed forward to the time of the God's kingdom coming. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, uh, Micah, Daniel, so many of these prophets focused on the coming Messiah and what the Messiah would bring, ultimately the kingdom of God. And so the psalmist is writing, God, restore our captivity. Bring our, let our captivity be fully restored. Remember when uh, Jesus was about to ascend in the book of Acts. The resurrection had occurred. The confusion was gone now about how a dead Messiah could live forever. Now we get it. Oh, you're going to rise from the dead. That's great. And then their question, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And of course, Jesus goes on to say, well, God's timing is not for you to know, but here's what you're to do in the meantime. It's the same idea. Restore our captivity. Bring a full answer to the promises of the Old Testament. This is what the singer is praying. He prays to the Lord to do exactly what he had promised. And he writes, restore our captivity as the streams in the south. The south is a reference to the Negev. In fact, you may even have, I hope you have a marginal reading that says Negev. You may even have a translation that says Negev because, because Negev N-E-G-E-V, is actually what the southern part of Israel is called today. This part that the singer is referring to is the part in Israel that's the south. In fact, the word Negev means south. It also means dry. So it's all just kind of this one synonymous 
word called the Negev. And it was made of a particular kind of soil. Interesting. We've got a video to show you of a stream in the Negev. This was uh, something that happened back in 2014. The soil of the Negev is called less soil. If you, yeah, yeah, pull the lights down a little bit. But this is the stream bed in the Negev, and when it rains in the Negev, the water comes down through and rushes. Look at this. This stream bed has been dry for years, but rain in the mountains caused this water to come down. And this, this, uh, th they knew that the water was going to be coming by this when they got the forecast. And so the, this guy brought his camera down, and all these people were standing around to watch. And this dog better get out of the way. <laughs> but look at that water. Look at this rushing water. This was just five years ago in the very area that the psalmist is writing. The psalmist talks about restore, restore us, Lord, like streams in the Negev. That, this is exactly what the psalmist is writing about. When streams would come to the Negev, they would come in a flash flood. They would come suddenly. The, the soil was called less soil, L-O-E-S-S. -S, and it's a very fine soil that once it... Look, that was a dry stream bed. Now all of a sudden, it is a river because of the provision of rain. The psalmist is saying, Lord, bring restoration like that. Make it happen that fast. Make it happen that overwhelming. Just... Bless us in a way that we can't hold back. This is the picture. Restore our captivity, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Make it overwhelming. Make it sudden. Make it abundant. And this is exactly what he's praying for. Last fall, uh, I was helping lead a tour in Israel, and we actually went through the Negev. In fact, there were some of you in this class that were on that tour last fall. And we were driving through the Negev, and all of a sudden it started raining. And it even started hailing. And our bus driver uh, was taking video while he was driving the bus. <laughs> and my guide next to me said, this is so rare, this never happens. And I thought, well, I hope, you know, I hope the bus driver keeps his eye on the road. One thing to text and drive is another to video and drive with 50 people behind him. But this never happened. And when we got down to Elat, which is where we stayed that night, we heard on the news that just after we had passed a certain point, there was a flash flood across the road, and they had to close the road. So what, what the psalmist is saying still happens today. Streams in the south. There is a picture here of sudden, overwhelming, huge blessing in a context where it rarely happens. I remember back in uh, 1984, I, I grew up in San Antonio, and uh, I remember Johnny Carson back then when he was on television every, was, uh, how often? Well, anyway, he said it when he was on television. He had just recently gotten divorced. I'm not sure what marriage it was that he was divorced from that time, but he said, he says, I'm not going to get married again until it snows in San Antonio. 
1984, San Antonio had the worst snowstorm it had ever had. I thought, that is great. God can make it snow in San Antonio. God can make it, there be streams in the desert. God can bring water to a parched land and to parched lives. And this is what the psalmist is asking for. When there are streams in the desert, it is a picture of the grace of God. Our singer here, our writer, is asking for the kingdom of God to come. Interesting, when Jesus actually came, and he came up to one of the feasts, it was the Feast of Booths, the Gospel of John tells us, that Jesus said these words. He said, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. It's from John 7. Jesus said this after everyone who heard him would have sung the Psalms of Ascents. They would have sung Psalm 126. They would have had in their mind this prayer for an overwhelming stream. And Jesus said, if you're thirsty, come and drink from me. One of the things I so love about the Word of God is that it is so real. We're not just reading about stories that happened, you know, couple of millennia ago and slapping a modern application on it. But the Bible speaks to where we live. Psalm 126 is not just written for those who came back from captivity. It's written for us because the principles in it are timeless. The psalmist is applying those principles to Israel, but we can apply those principles to our lives. We are glad we could say the same thing. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. We could say the same thing. The psalm gives us a couple of pictures of hope. We've seen the first one, like streams in the Negev. Like it, it's something only God can do. It's overwhelming. It's sudden. It's, it's huge. But there's another picture that's very much slower. Look at verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The Hebrew text emphasizes the certainty of the event by repeating the word coming. Now, we don't have that here in the English. It, in verse 6, it says that, uh, that he shall indeed come again. The, the verb there is come, but it's actually he shall come coming. It's, it's repeated to give emphasis. And so the New American Standard just translated, shall indeed come. And the idea is that it is certain. It's a promise. That the one who goes forth weeping but carrying a bag of seed that is sowing is going to come in not with weeping but with joy and not carrying seeds but carrying sheaves, carrying the fruit or the final realization of, uh, of God's joy. Now let's look at this in a New Testament context for a minute. Turn with me to Galatians 6. In fact, let's look at a couple of passages, several passages. 
that give us some application of these principles we see in Psalm 126. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Miracles of the past are mirrors for the future. Miracles of the past are mirrors of the future. If you want to know what's going to happen in the future, look at the past. The God, the faithful God of the past, does miracles in order to point us to the future and give us hope that he's going to do it again. When Jesus walked around the Sea of Galilee and healed people, raised people from the dead, uh, restored life to people, gave sight to people. He was doing, in a small sense, what he was going to do, what he plans to do later, in a cosmic sense. The miracles that he did in the past are mirrors that reflect what he's going to do in the future. Galatians chapter 6, look down at verse 6. Let's start there. Paul writes, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. I like this verse. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will reap also. He will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Now the context of this, if you look at the greater context of what Paul's writing is, is in the context of giving money. But the principle extends far beyond that because we have to be told, the fact that we have to be told not to grow weary means that we struggle with growing weary. We struggle with growing weary and doing good. We struggle with continuing to sow, to sow, to sow. Or like Psalm 126 says, we struggle going out with weeping and sowing the good seed. We want the harvest. But Paul reminds us that there is a principle that goes throughout all the scripture that is that we need to not lose heart in sowing, in doing good, so that, so that we can reap a harvest later. And there's a promise here. In due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. So keep on going, persevere, and don't quit. Remember that old hymn? Sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontide and the dewy eve, waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Okay, that's it. <laughs> you do remember. Well, it's sort of a cheesy song, isn't it? You ever sing that and go, what does that mean? Well, Psalm 126 tells us what it means. Galatians 6 tells us what it means. That we sow seeds. That we sow the word of God. We live the word of God. 
and we don't grow weary in doing it. We keep doing it, and we keep doing it, and we keep doing it. Some seed is going to take, some seed is not going to take, but we will reap a harvest if we don't grow weary. So as we have opportunity, let's continue to do good, especially to fellow believers, which is what verse 10 means. Now, turn to the right to 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's look at another example. 1 Peter 1. The singer of Psalm 126 was in a similar situation that we are in today, joyful because of the past and yet praying and struggling and waiting for the full promise of the kingdom. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Verse 8 and 9. Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Two great verses as Peter begins this epistle. He basically says the main source of your joy is to be in the Lord God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in what he's done for you. You greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, he says, you've been distressed. Verse 6. Um, and verse 8. And though you haven't seen him, you love him. And you rejoice greatly with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We're talking lots of joy here. Why? Because the outcome of your faith is the salvation of your souls. There is a harvest coming. It's coming. And if you wonder if it's coming, all we've got to look is back at the past and to see what God's done in the past. The resurrection of Jesus is another example of this sowing principle. In fact, Jesus even mentioned it uh, himself. I can't remember where it was, but he said, he talks about, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if, but if it dies then it will bear fruit in abundance. It's a picture of the resurrection, and he led the way. The, um, the feast that would occur when you would bring in your first fruits and you would give the, your first sheath, you would do it with the expectation that there would be more. Jesus was the first fruits from the dead. That is, that he's the first one with a promise that there's more coming. So God's activity in the past points us to the future. Christ's resurrection is a picture is a promise of our own resurrection, and it's coming. This is what Peter is saying. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. There is a future, and it is a real future. Turn back a page or so to the book of James, chapter 5. James does a great job with this sowing and reaping principle. James 5, look at verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door, standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of the suffering 
and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. I love that example. He uses what we looked at last week, Job. The endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. Job's life is given here as a picture of our lives. That is that we endure, we suffer, we struggle, but we also know the outcome of the Lord's dealings. The end of it all is that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Look down at verse 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Then he gives an example. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. If you have the NIV, I love the way that's translated. I think it says, Elijah was a man just like us. He's just a plain old guy like us. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. The earth produced its fruit. There was a harvest. I don't know if you noticed last week on Monday, so this would be a week ago, not last Monday, oh, anyway, anyway, a while back, a week or so ago, there was a Monday, there was no rain in the forecast. I looked at my phone, and it was just pure sunshine all week long. I was walking down the street, and I thought, you know what, Lord, you could make it rain. It's supposed to be 100 degrees, no rain in the forecast. So I said, Lord, Seriously, I just said, Lord, you can make it rain. Would you make it rain? And it was really about that much of a prayer. The next day, clouds rolled in. This was a Tuesday, and Wednesday morning it rained. Now, would it have rained anyway? I don't know. <laughs> but the fact is, there was no rain in the forecast. I prayed, and it rained. So you're welcome. <laughs> no. Who knows? Who knows? But it encouraged me because it did more than simply water our grass, water our trees, make the water company happy by filling the lake up a little bit. It, it waters hope when it rains, especially when you pray for rain. In a forecast where it wasn't supposed to rain. It lets you know that God hears your prayers in other areas as well where he hasn't answered so quickly and so easily. Uh, just yesterday, Kathy was looking for something. She says, I can't find such and so. I just can't find it. I've looked everywhere, and I even looked for it. I couldn't find it. And then Kathy said, she just prayed, Lord, would you just help me find it? Boom. She found it. Does that ever happen to you? Well, that's great, because sometimes it doesn't happen to you, too, <laughs> or to me. Sometimes that doesn't work. But when it does work, in such a a context where it couldn't be coincidence. I mean, she like just prayed it, and then she finds it. I prayed for, a, for rain in a forecast where there was none, and the next day, cloud roll, rolls in. Now, I don't mean to get all charismatic on you, or to say that, for example, you know, we can just pray and God will give us whatever we want. But I say this to say, sometimes, if you are aware, God can encourage you along. 
Sometimes the prayers that seem to just bounce off the ceiling, God will answer in a way that is unmistakably Him and will encourage you to keep going, to not give up, to keep sowing that seed, and to not give up because a harvest is coming. When the ultimate prayer as was prayed in Psalm 126, the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, and our great privilege of participating in that will happen. God hasn't forgotten you. He hears your prayers. He is waiting for the right time to answer in such a way that he gets the maximum glory, that you will realize it in a way that you can give him praise, and that other people among the nations will say, the Lord has done great things for them. We are glad. Well, Psalm 126 is a prayer. So as we bow for prayer and close, I'll just read it again to begin our closing prayer. So bow with me. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro, weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Father, you show us from Psalm 126 and from the whole breadth of Scripture that the, the miraculous works that you've done in the past are simply mirrors of the future, promises that you will fulfill ultimately your word in the future. Today's dry stream beds are tomorrow's rivers. Today's hard work with good seed is tomorrow's harvest. We want that now. We, we want those streams to come rushing through the Negev immediately. We want the harvest now. We want our arms full of sheaves now. We struggle with waiting and praying and just sowing and sowing and sowing. Father, thank you for those moments like rain in August, like finding something that you'd lost, and a million other ways that you encourage us along to keep going, to keep sowing, to not give up, knowing that we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Father, if there are any here today that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ or have no confidence that if they were to die this moment, where they would be, would you give them the courage to believe in the one who has died on the cross for their sins and give them that forgiveness, that gift. For those of us who have already accepted that great gift, would you give us perseverance to not grow cynical or bitter at the way the world is going or the frustration of politics or the news, but instead we will look into the scripture and if no other place to Psalm 126 where the promise of a future harvest and the promise of streams in the desert help us keep going and not give up. Father, thanks for the great things that you have done for us. And we tell you, with all honesty, we are glad.
And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.